Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Christopher Cotter. I'm joined as ever by David Robertson. And who are we? Uh, we are the Religious Studies Project. I was going to try and say it in German, but I, you know, it's it's late at night now. We've been we've been out whining and dining. Um, you know the the. the the this ivory tower that we live in. Exactly. This is what all your tuition fees are paying for <laughs> in Germany. Yeah. Do, do they have tuition fees in Germany? I don't think so. I wouldn't have thought so, no. no we're just pronouncing that. Anyway, on with this week's podcast. What is it, David? It is Evangelical Yoga, Cultural Appropriation and Translation in American Religions. And that's recorded by Daniel Gorman. And it's an interview with Candy Gunter Brown. And just a shout out to Craig Prentice if you're jogging around Kansas City right now. <laughs> hey, step up the pace, man. <laughs> Keep it up, you can do it. Take it away, Daniel. Dr. Candy Gunter Brown, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you. So I'm calling you um, from upstate New York. You are in Indiana, and I'm told the weather is equally miserable in both places. That seems to be about right. Okay. Um, so today we're going to be talking about your um, research into new religious movements, particularly how people who are not Hindus wind up practicing yoga. Sure. So why don't so to begin, why don't you tell our listeners a bit how you got interested in new religious movements, or in this case, an old religious practice being done in a new way. <laughs> Sure. Well, my research trajectory uh, really started with looking at evangelicals in the 19th century and at print culture. Uh, and then as I wanted to move forward in time to uh, look at the later 19th century into the 20th century into the 21st century, uh, I realized that it was really a much bigger story than just what was going on in the United States uh, with evangelicals. And so I needed to start looking at global movements um, in much more interconnection. Uh, and I also realized that a big part of the story was Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity. Uh, so that took my research then into the directions of looking at uh, uh, particularly Pentecostal practices of prayer for healing and deliverance from evil spirits. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, I did a lot of interview work and field work with uh, various Pentecostals and ask them about their uh, healing experiences. Uh, and so this led me to start asking questions uh, that were, uh, in a sense, of more of an empirical nature of what happens when people pray for healing. Uh, and so then I was looking at some science and religion kinds of questions. But I also got some very interesting responses from my Pentecostal respondents, uh, because when I started asking them about prayer for healing, they also started to volunteer that they loved their chiropractors. Really? Uh, and this was a, a somewhat surprising response to me, given uh, what I knew about chiropractic and that its roots were actually in mesmerism and spiritualism, and the founders and developers of the profession saw themselves as doing something very different from uh, Christianity. Uh, and the Christian informants I was talking to, not only did they love their chiropractors, but they also insisted that they were Christian. Uh, they didn't bother telling me that their medical doctors were Christian, but they really wanted me to know that their chiropractors were. Uh, well, again, this was very interesting because if you look at survey research that's been done on chiropractors, uh, you see that 
around 80% or so will say that they're Christians, and around 80% or so share vitalistic metaphysical beliefs very much in line with the founders of chiropractic. So you've got uh, a really interesting kind of blending of worldviews and frameworks and interpretations of the world. And I realized that this was really just the tip of the iceberg. And so from looking at chiropractic, I began to look at other kinds of complementary and alternative medicine, including various kinds of meditation, transcendental meditation, mindfulness meditation, but also Reiki, therapeutic touch, acupuncture, uh, homeopathy, aromatherapy, uh, and realized that some of the most engaged practitioners uh, were actually evangelical Christians. Uh, and particularly the ones who were interested in charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity, who had a kind of worldview where there's some kind of spiritual uh, force that's interacting with the world. And so a lot of the reasoning process that evangelicals used was if there's a spirit and it's having beneficial effects on health, then there must be a kind of analogy between the Holy Spirit and the spiritual properties that are at work in these other practices. And thus, I landed on uh, yoga and mindfulness uh, practices by evangelicals, uh, as well as by a lot of other uh, Americans who engage in these practices for various reasons uh, related to spirituality as much as health and wellness. That's a lot. Um, <laughs> let me, um, I'll try, let me try to pick one thread and we'll, we'll work through this. Um, some listeners, especially outside the United States may not be familiar with some of the traditions you mentioned, some of the 19th century occult things, mesmerism and chiropractic. Could you talk a little bit more about how these, um, these alternative viewpoints to Christianity, where they came from? Sure. Well, in the around the middle of the 19th century, there was a lot of dissatisfaction among certain Americans who uh, were dealing with both a medical orthodoxy and a religious orthodoxy. And the medical orthodoxy was heroic medicine. And uh, by today's standards, not very effective and very aggressive. So things like vomiting with mercury uh, derivatives and bleeding people. And it was the patient who was the hero as they were mm -hmm. uh, subjected to all kinds of uh, very strenuous treatments by doctors. Torture. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, for, for many patients, that was their perspective. But then a lot of the Calvinist theologians who were in the kind of dominant mainstream uh, basically gave the advice that patients should submit to their doctors uh, as a, a way of resigning to God's will for sickness. Uh, and their reasoning was that spiritual sanctification uh, required a kind of physical uh kind of submission and sickness. And so this dominant theology that sanctification is produced through suffering in the body uh, aligned well with uh, heroic medicine, but there was also a lot of resistance. And so this is where you start getting the emergence of nature cure kinds of medical alternatives, but then you also start to get the development of divine healing movements where the interest is in a focus on prayer for healing. Uh, and so whether it's a nature cure of looking to water and spiritual forces and kind of the alignment of the planets or whether it's a prayer to God the Father through Jesus uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's a, a widespread search for something else, some alternative to uh, the mainstream offerings. It's very interesting because I, I recently read for my graduate school lists, um, Catherine Albanese's A Republic of Mind and Spirit, and she talks in that book about how osteopathy emerged as sort of this quasi-religious movement, the idea that you can align the energy forces in your body by manipulating bones. 
Yes, and actually the founder of chiropractic, Dee Dee Palmer, was accused by uh, still the founder of osteopathy of basically stealing his ideas. Uh, the, the ideas are so close, and they both uh, emerge out of a kind of vitalistic meta metaphysical framework. Uh, and what's interesting is that osteopathy was much more um, embraced by the medical mainstream so that today there's really a, a kind of sense of equivalence almost between an osteopathic uh, medical degree and uh, a, an MD, whereas chiropractic is still much more on the fringes, even though it's become a lot more mainstream. And it's not necessarily that osteopathy has actually renounced the metaphysical framework, but they've been a lot more intentional and effective in terms of gaining mainstream medical legitimacy. Well, that's one thing I've wondered about. I mean, it's just... Uh someone looking at you know, medical treatments, you know, chiropractic, chiropractors don't receive the same training in anatomy, physiology that a doctor or, an, or a modern osteopath receives. Uh, that's correct. And it's not just a matter of difference in training, but it really is difference in philosophy and idea that, uh, Palmer articulated, so Palmer, the founder of chiropractic, basically said that all disease is a matter of a failure of an alignment uh, with innate intelligence, this universal intelligence, uh, and so innate was the short for this. And so you may ask the question, what are chiropractors adjusting? Uh, and it's actually they're adjusting the spine for the sake of having a free flow of innate. Uh, it's not just a physical kind of adjustment. Uh, and so that was the rationale for how chiropractic could affect all kinds of other conditions, whether it's uh, having earaches or whether it's infections or whether it's turning a breech baby. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, different claims that even today are made for chiropractic. And they stem from the idea that, that really the key to health is this innate intelligence. Uh, and so it's that philosophy that's really at the core and, and why uh, there's still so much tension with modern medicine. I do want to move on to the yoga connection, but the one, the one question I'll pose to you as somebody who researches these kind of movements, so to some, you know, let's say an atheist medical practitioner, what you're describing is, you know, pseudoscience, but, you know, that doesn't seem that way to the people who practice it and believe that it helps them. How do you navigate that balance between judging and understanding? Well, I think this is where it's important to really look at uh, a multiplicity of perspectives and to try and explain, uh, well, who are the developers of various practices? But not only what are the roots of these practices, what are today's uh, philosophies? Uh, and this is why for chiropractic, for instance, it's important that there's survey research that's been done by chiropractors uh, that basically confirm that uh, the beliefs that are held by many chiropractors today are actually very much in alignment uh, with uh, those that were articulated by the Palmers. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that chiropractors always communicate that with their patients. And in fact, that often is not the case. And so one of the things that's important for scholars to do is to actually look at the the variety of narratives that are articulated by practitioners as well as patients, depending on who their audiences are. Uh, and this is something that we'll see with yoga as well, that the explanation of what practices do, why they're practices, what they mean, uh, you may not always get the same explanation if you're looking at different audiences and different purposes for uh, giving that account of what the practice is. So now this is where I think chiropractic and yoga tie together. This concept of energy in the body, 
Well, to someone who knows anything about Hinduism, this sounds a lot like the idea of chakras and energy flows in the body. So in the 19th century, when people like Palmer were starting their work, what understanding in America was there of Indian religions? Sure. Well, there was a, there was a combination of Western metaphysical traditions uh, that uh, something like homeopathy or aromatherapy would be rooted in that kind of tradition. Um, and there was often quite a bit of exchange, though, with uh, Asian religious traditions as well. So a lot of the people who were developing these uh, Western metaphysical ideas, they, they actually were reading uh, texts that they got from India and other parts of Asia. Uh, they were interacting with ideas of, say, prana or chi and chakras and meridians, as you mentioned. Uh, and so there's often a, a real kind of exchange and consonance in these ideas. And a lot of the practitioners of, say, chiropractic or yoga will say, yes, there's a lot that uh, there actually is in common between the Western and the Eastern traditions. Yeah, I was thinking of the theosophists, people like Madame Blavatsky, who think you can control the spirits with your mind, and then she goes and lives in India for a decade. <laughs> well, exactly. And, I mean, she actually formally converted to Buddhism, and she drew extensively on Hinduism and uh, a variety of Western traditions and Freemasonry. So that kind of eclectic interest in uh, various forms of spirituality, sometimes framed as science themselves, uh, a lot of the pioneers in the kinds of movements that are popular today were very interested in exploring a variety of practices and traditions. So as far as yoga goes, when did that begin to be introduced to the American market? I'm thinking, for instance, in the 1920s, there were the immigration restrictions. So how is this material about philosophy, exercise, how is that making the crossing to America? Sure. Well, even as early as the beginning of the 19th century, you've got the transcendentalists, folks like Ralph Alder Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, who are reading as many translated uh, Hindu and Buddhist texts as they're able to. And you've got uh, Thoreau, who's doing his best to practice yoga. Uh, and so even in the 19th century, you can see some of the uh, beginnings of practices coming into America. Uh, the World Parliament of Religion in 1893 was a really important event because there you've got Vivekananda, you've got uh, actually several both Hindu and Buddhist uh, spokespersons who are uh, starting to frame practices in a, a language of science to, to basically argue that uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, as they're starting to be named and understood by Westerners, are actually more compatible with modern science than Christianity is. Uh, and so you start to have a stream of popularizers, uh, and even with immigration restrictions, you've got enough who uh, are either coming into the United States themselves or who uh, whose books and publications are uh, crossing over that, that the influence began, begins to be disseminated. Uh, Yogananda is another one of these hugely influential figures who sets up uh, base in California and continues to be popular even into uh, the present day with his self-realization fellowship that he established. And so now his followers are continuing to disseminate traditions. Uh, and so 
there have been a variety of health and beauty promotions, exercise promotions, the use of television. So really uh, a, an increase over the course of the 20th century, um, but accelerating with the lifting of immigration restrictions in the 1960s, the interest of the uh, beat generation, the counterculture. Uh, but then even more recently in the 1990s and beyond, you start to see just this increasing mainstream status, even to the point of putting practices like yoga and mindfulness into public schools. And that really is new, even just within the last couple of decades. Well, it was interesting when you mentioned Yogananda in the 1930s, because he was somebody who preached that Jesus was another incarnation of the, you know, the Hindu deities, an avatar. And that's been a very common strategy uh, that's been a very common strategy by a lot of the promoters of yoga is to, to argue for, for consonance, for complementarity. Uh, and that's actually been one of the things that's been motivating for evangelical Christians, even, who feel that there's something missing in their own tradition. And so they're trying to, to fill in and supplement by borrowing from other kinds of traditions. So evangelical Christians in the present day, how are they accessing yoga? What kinds of facilities, for instance? Well, a lot of times there's the YMCA, there's health clubs, sometimes more traditional yoga studios. So some Christians will find their way into either the health club, they'll find their way either into the health club version or into the studio version. Uh, but then also there's a proliferation of explicitly Christian uh, versions of yoga or alternatives to yoga. And so you start to get movements like Christoga, Holy Yoga, Holy Fit. Yahweh yoga, praise moves, uh, and some of them keep yoga somewhere in the title, some of them try to remove yoga from the title, and there's a kind of evangelical sense that religion really is fundamentally reducible to language. Uh, it's about what you believe, and it's about what you state that you believe. And so if you change the language, and if you say you're no longer doing sun salutations, salutes to the sun, but now you're doing sun salutations, S-O-N, instead of S-U-N, you've now repurposed the practice and dedicated it to Jesus. You're no longer doing pranayama, but you're breathing in the Holy Spirit. So by relabeling uh, either individual poses or larger practices, uh, many evangelicals are convinced that they've uh, basically emptied the contents, uh, they've removed the Hindu contents from the container of neutral yoga practices, and they've poured in Bible verses and prayers. Uh, now, with a different framework of religion, where it's about practices, not necessarily just beliefs, then that, that may seem a rather um, strange or unworkable kind of approach. And so thus, some Hindu critics of Christianization of yoga will basically say the prayers are actually the bodily practices. Doing the sun salutation with your body is a form of devotion to Surya, the sun god. And so there are actually some warnings by Hindu spokespersons saying that ultimately evangelicals are going to find their faith corrupted um, by their own standards, and they're going to be led into the true way of enlightenment. Um, and it may not be so easy just to relabel practices and make them evangelical. Do you think, um, building on the theme of Hindu response, are there Hindu groups that are offended that anyone's just, you know, using this tradition without a sense of where it comes from? 
Oh, there's definitely critiques of cultural appropriation, and uh, the Hindu American Foundation launched a Take Back Yoga campaign in 2008, uh, and some of their spokespersons have been critical of uh, Christian appropriation. Uh, but you, you find this similarly with uh, Buddhists who complain about appropriation of mindfulness practices and the claim that they've been secularized, or in some cases, the claim that they've been Christianized. Uh, so that's definitely a critique that's present. Now, I'm curious, in the way you go about researching these things, do you travel to Christian yoga studios, and when you go there, what, what do you do? As the part, are you a participant? Are you just observing? Uh, I've done observing. I've, I've relied uh, a lot on the just the proliferation of online sources and video presentations, but I've also been present in meditation uh, kind of settings, and I've observed. I don't participate. Uh, uh, I... I think that there are ethical issues that uh, come into play with that. And so my stance is that of an observer. I do a lot of interview work with participants and with teachers. Uh, and I also do empirical work and look at some of the studies that have been done. And this is where an interesting aspect is to ask, well, what happens when people participate in either secularized or Christianized versions of something like yoga or mindfulness meditation? And, and what's interesting is that there's sociological work that suggests that there are actually uh, so profound changes in spiritual and religious experiences that result even sometimes from very short-term involvement, but that basically the longer people tend to be involved in these practices, the more likely what started off as just an exercise class has turned into a spiritual pursuit. Uh, and the content of religious practices does tend to shift towards uh, practices that would be more aligned with, say, Hinduism uh, than with Christianity. And this is actually very much um, uh, parallel to the kinds of claims that are made by yoga teachers and mindfulness teachers who are very confident that the practices themselves are transformative. And so here you get both proponents of yoga and mindfulness and some of the Christian critics who are, who are essentially arguing that there is something inherent about these practices themselves that transform people, regardless of what their intentions are going into the practices. Intentions, it seems, can actually change through the experiences of practices. Uh, and that claim does, to some degree, seem to be borne out by the sociological research that's been done. Do you see any regional differences in the United States about the Christian reception of yoga? Uh, well, it seems that the uh, predictably, in some ways, the coasts uh, have a lot more yoga and a lot more Christian yoga, uh, and also some of the controversies over this. You, you see more Christian yoga programs on the coast. You also see just more yoga programs. Uh, but uh, it's not coincidental that where the uh, most high-profile lawsuit over yoga in public schools took place, it was in Encinitas, San Diego County, uh, California. Uh, and it was actually right next door to Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship. That's interesting. Uh, that it took place. This is also the birthplace of Ashtanga Yoga in the United States, which was brought over by uh, Patabi Joyce. And that was the particular form of yoga that was being practiced in uh, the public schools where there was a lawsuit. So a place like Encinitas is interesting because uh, something like 45% of the population uh, practices yoga compared with, um, well, at, at 
as of 2012, which was when that 45% date came out, it was about 9% nationally. Now it's about 15% nationally. About 40% of the population is Christian, but that compares to about 70% of the total U.S. population that's Christian. So you have fewer Christians, more religious diversity uh, in a place like Encinitas, but you still have a lot of Christians who are practicing, and it was a minority of those Christians who protested against yoga. Uh, The large majority seem to actually be pretty interested in practicing it themselves. Um, We're closing in on the end of our session, but I want to try to connect this practice of yoga to some of the other things you mentioned, particularly transcendental meditation. Um, When, as it's, you know, it's billed as TM now, it's sort of this exercise, but there's no real sense of where that comes from. Um, Do you think Christians are also participating in TM movements? Uh, I think that they are, and one of the main places where TM has really gotten its foothold is in what's now called quiet time programs in public schools. Uh, And so transcendental meditation more comes out of uh, Hindu meditation traditions, and this is actually uh, one of the places where uh, really one of the only lawsuits where there was a judicial decision defining religion um, was uh, a case of Malnath Yogi in 1979, which found that transcendental medication was uh, a religion. And in one of the lines of a concurring opinion by Arlen Adams, he said, well, if a Catholic can't practice uh, in schools, then neither should a transcendental meditator be allowed to do so. Even so, TM programs, quiet time programs, have proliferated in public schools even to the present day alongside mindfulness programs. So I think that Uh, A lot of the time, Christians and others, atheists uh, as well, uh, really don't know where practices are coming from, and they don't know how connected to the originating traditions those practices remain. So it's not just a matter of a long time ago there were ancient religious roots, but if you look at uh, how practices are being framed when not being marketed to the public, you actually find that there's still a lot of the same claims that this is, for instance, uh, a Vedic victory when yoga gets into public schools, or this is stealth Buddhism when mindfulness gets into the schools. Uh, So those are the kinds of claims that are made when talking to Hindu or Buddhist or sympathizer audiences. But a lot of the people who are interested in doing practices for health or wellness, uh, they really don't know where these practices come from, and they really haven't thought much about how intentions may change through their participation in these practices. If anything, the future of religion in this country is going to be very interesting, because we're going to see... (laughs) Well, I'm thinking, you know, if the country is growing more secular, the question is, if these practices endure, then do we need to rethink the idea of secularization? Well, I think we absolutely do. And this is where um, my working title for the book that I'm working on now on yoga and mindfulness in public schools is secular and religious. And I think that practices actually can be both at the same time. And that by presenting practices as secular, this can actually be a more effective way of advancing new forms of religion and spirituality. Thank you for your time, Dr. Gunther Brown. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you so much to Candy, of course, but uh, to Daniel for another excellent interview and quickly becoming a a, a solid member of the team. Yeah, um, it's a bit of an emotional time for us, David, and we're about to come up to our summer break. We've only got one more podcast for you listeners. Uh, These years are flying by. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. 
it doesn't make me feel good to dwell on it. It makes me feel good to think that we've been doing it for so long, but then, you know, you think... Um, How much money could I have made if I poured that <laughs> amount of time in this? If I had a proper it. job selling insurance or something, you know, could have said. Um, you, I've just heard from Daniel. Um, you're about to hear next week from our, another stalwart RSP interviewer. It's uh, Brad Stoddard. He's been speaking with Judith Wiesenfeld on black religious movements and religious racial identities during the Great Migration. Yeah, that's going to be another excellent interview. A bit of an American kind of theme to the tale of this year. Um, so do come back for that, as ever. And keep checking out our responses. Um, these are the last uh, few responses that have been um, edited by Katie Aston. Um, so just to say thank you to her um, for this uh, this full academic year's service mm -hmm. um, in the, the editor's position. Um, we're going to have a new... Uh, Features editor for you uh, next year. Um, and we're quite excited about the uh, yeah. um, about that, but we're maybe going to save that announcement until uh, <laughs> you know we don't want to. Yeah, let's let's wait till he's got at least one response scheduled before we. Uh, exactly, but yeah, thanks so much to Katie um, for helping us out um, and doing a really and doing a really job. yeah a really good job, and she'll be staying part of the team, so hopefully we'll be hearing uh, from her next year. Whilst we're saying thanks, thanks to the BASR, NAASR, and to IAHR. Always. And to the AASR as well. We don't, um, we don't mention them often enough. No. We also don't say thank you to you often enough for using our Amazon affiliate links, which gives us a, a quite considerable contribution to the upkeep of the programme. And to all of you who have made a contribution to our, uh, through our Patreon page at uh, patreon.com backslash project rs but um the only other thing to say thank you for as ever is thanks. listening yeah 